Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Samuel 2, the second half of the chapter, from verses 12 through 32. This is God's word. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Maenam to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. As the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, now Asahel was swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Asahel pursued Abner, and he went. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Maenam. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. And the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. This ends the reading of God's word. At this time, children ages three through kindergarten are dismissed to the little landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. 
What a joy to worship the Lord together with you, and we'll continue worshiping Him over the Word right now. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, so much for 2 Samuel chapter 2. Thank you for the mercy that's on display here and the way it creates peacemakers. Would you create in us, in this strife-filled, war-torn world, peacemakers? Would you do the, the wonderful heart work of showering such transformative mercy down upon us and burying it deep within us that we cannot help but, like our Father, be peacemakers wherever we find conflict, even when peacemaking costs so much? Instruct us, Lord. In this bracing passage, to hear your voice right now and to know exactly how we're to conduct ourselves in any of the conflicts that we might find ourselves in at the moment or the ones yet to come, or how we might pray for and engage in larger conflicts far beyond our full comprehension and yet grieving the heart of all with a keen and observant eye. Speak, Lord, now, for your servants are listening as you instruct us, and not just instruct us, but fashion us into peacemakers. Through this passage, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What a, what a tough passage of the Bible, isn't it? I mean, this is pretty brutal. Oh, my goodness. I'm thinking, yikes, what would you rate this? PG-13, or whatever. This is a very difficult passage of the Bible. It's very challenging to understand. Lots of the commentators didn't say anything. They just retold the story and then said, okay, we're going on to chapter 3. Skipping right over, what do you say? Here's what I think God is doing. I think God is making peacemakers out of this chapter. He's making us into peacemakers. You'll see it. I think he's showering down godly mercy upon someone who doesn't deserve it. And in the process, he's transforming his people, the people under David, into peacemakers. I'll show you how it's going to happen in your own heart right now. If you remember Jesus teaching at the very beginning of his ministry during the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember how he said, blessed are the peacemakers, why? For they, what? They shall be called sons of God. Why does Jesus say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God? It's because those who engage in making peace as a third party mediator between others or making peace even in their own conflicts where they choose to lean toward mercy first are actually revealing that they're adopted and beloved in the family of God and called His sons. Because that's what the Father does. The Father has sent Jesus, the Son, into the world to make peace with all those who don't deserve the Father's peace and those who then are, have, are the sons of the Father having been made peace with God through Christ's death on the cross. They now are bearing the Father's image. They're carrying on the fatherly character. They are making peace. Don't be the person who uses uh, uh, manipulation and gossip and slander and secret under the table stories that ends up dividing people. You be the person who inserts words of mercy which create peace. 
If you're in a conflict, don't be the person who holds revenge and, res- and, and bitterness and resentment the longest. You be the one who gets rid of it first and extends mercy to make peace. Those who demonstrate the Father's character are sons of God, Jesus says, and they are peacemakers, and blessed shall they be indeed. Jesus is calling us here to make peace through this brutal and bracing story in 2 Samuel chapter 2. Jesus says of himself through Isaiah's prophecy, I'm the Prince of Peace. And he, he wept over Jerusalem. Do you remember? Oh, that you knew the terms of peace. You see, Jesus is not calling for a thin, phony, cover over the facts kind of fake peace, counterfeit peace. He has terms of peace. In fact, he says it elsewhere in Matthew chapter 10, 34. Do not think I've come to bring peace on the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. So how do those two fit together? He's the Prince of Peace. He comes to bring peace. And he makes us into peacemakers. And then he says, oh, but I don't come to bring that kind of peace. I come to bring a sword. It means he has terms. He upholds the justice of God. And he fulfills that justice by dying on the cross and absorbing all of God's wrath that's due to us onto himself. So that we, with all our sins forgiven, and the righteousness of God imputed to us might walk free, though we do not deserve it. The terms of God's peace have been established and fulfilled so also in human relationships. The terms of peace must be articulated and fulfilled. Sometimes that requires a sword. A sword, the Word of God, which cuts away sin and removes sin from our lives. We confess As with a sword, sometimes confession is the cutting with a sword. And we will be forgiven and have fellowship with the Father. There are ideas and even sometimes persons who are committed to those harmful ideas that must be separated from the body of Christ and from you and from your family and from your very thinking in order that we might have peace with God. You cannot make friends with the world and also be a friend of God. If you're going to be a friend of God, you will make an enemy of the world. If you're to be a friend of the world, you make God your enemy. It's perfectly compatible, in fact, necessary, complementary, and endorsing and supporting of one another that Christ comes as the maker of peace, the prince of peace, and at the same time, he brings a sword because his peace comes with terms. James 3 says it like this. Who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. There are those terms. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, that is from God. That's how I understand his word from above. But is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above, that is from God, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What the Bible calls us to do 
is to look at situations of strife and conflict. And we have many to see in our world, don't we? Even in our own lives, and maybe most painful and sad of all is within the church among Christians, kind of a civil war, most unholy of all. And, and we're to step into that and comment on it and engage in it, even mediate in it, so that we might be a voice of God's peace, which is from His wisdom, and it calls for mercy. It calls for one side or the other or both to say, I am going to lay down my arms, though I feel I have every right to take up a sword against you for what you've done, I'm going to lay that sword down. In fact, I'm going to apply its sharpness to my own life, and I'm going to say, here is what I know the sword of God's Spirit is cutting out in me. I can remember times of conflict in my own life where I spent so much of the quietness in the moment, sometimes in in bed at night or just thinking as I'm walking or as I'm engaging in something else, my mind engaging in sort of self-justifying, self-defending. Have you ever done this when you're in a conflict? You're thinking to yourself, oh, I should have said that, and oh, I should have said this, and oh, if I would have thought that, then I could show how right I am and how wrong they are. Have you ever been like that? Maybe none of you have ever done that, so that's just me. But then By God's grace, long about that process, it hits me, and all of a sudden I realize, I've done things wrong too. I've done things I have to ask forgiveness for. I've done things I shouldn't have done or I should have done differently. I'm going to hand over to the Lord the persons with whom I'm having this conflict and let God deal with them. He can be their teacher, instructor. I won't be their Holy Spirit. He can be their Holy Spirit because His Holy Spirit is at work in me right now calling me to openly and honestly and vulnerably and truthfully expose myself before him and say, Lord, search me and know me. Try my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the paths of life everlasting. We see that on display in this most veiled of passages, painful, brutal, warlike, I want you to see three incentives for being a peacemaker with the Father's peace. Here they are. I'll give them to you, and we'll walk through the paragraphs that Howard just read. You'll see them as they unfold in the narrative. First, make the Father's peace. You see why I call it the Father's peace? It's because Jesus said you're sons of God if you're peacemakers. Make the Father's peace for the godless initiate war to everyone's loss. Make the Father's peace for the godless initiate war to everyone's loss. Second, make the Father's peace, for it comes at so great a cost. And third, make the Father's peace, for the living God mercifully reigns over all. I want you to now look with me to the passage. Let's unfold this and see each of these. Make the Father's peace, for the godless initiate war to everyone's loss. By contrast, you remember how God is with David and the house of David? Here we're introduced to David's three nephews, one of which is David's general, Joab, and and then Joab has two brothers, Abishai and Asahel. These, These are men, young men, probably in their late teens or early 20s. They're very strong and good soldiers. They're part of David's fighting men, and they're carrying on the spirit of their uncle, David. And likely the spirit of their father, Zeruiah, who is also a an older brother to David. 
Only mentioned, but he's not present in the story. These three are are carrying on. They're a favor that God has blessed upon David, calling David to be king over all Israel, yet only Judah recognizes David at this point. And beyond that, there is a counterfeit king, Ishbosheth, the remaining son of Saul, has been raised up by Saul's general, Abner. And Abner, I'm calling Abner the aggressor because all he wants to do is pick a fight. One careful observer within the body of Christ here asked me after last Sunday, if Saul died on the battlefield battling against the Philistines, how did his general escape alive? Shouldn't his general be so loyal as to be right next to Saul? And if Saul dies, shouldn't his general die too? Well, it tells you volumes about what kind of man Abner is. He scoots away when his king needs him the most. And here he's raised up as a puppet king, Ishbosheth, man of shame. And Ishbosheth is carrying on Saul's tradition, but he has no place. He's a counterfeit, a phony, an imposter king. And Abner has no place seeking to divide the people of Israel. Oh, the profound prophetic nature of this passage at this very moment, right? Here's Abner, a Jew, raising up a Jewish king in Ishbosheth to stand against David, God's appointed king in all of David's house. Abner is bringing shame and dishonor not only to the people of Israel, to himself and to David, but he's shaming and is dishonoring and he's rejecting God. So Abner has this idea, I know, let's go over to the pool at Gibeon and let's have a competition and see how it turns out. Twelve men from your side, twelve men from my side, we'll see who's got the stronger, the better, the, the mightier warriors. And they fight and almost instantly all twelve. 24 are dead. And so a mighty battle breaks out. Verse 17, and the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Abner loses. David wins. You could go home right there, but no. God has plans. He has plans to reveal a stunning mercy here, one nearly as stunning as the mercy we've received in Jesus Christ and surely points to it. So tragic was this 24-man loss in this silly, arrogant, God-mocking, rejecting game of life and death that Abner called for, that, that it has no place in the annals of war history or even in Israel or Semitic history. One commentator suggested it might be a similar picture to David representing Israel fighting against Goliath, representing the Philistines back in 1 Samuel. But that makes Abner a really lame version of Goliath. Sadly, all 24 die. And then a full-blown war breaks out. And David's army, with God's favor, the better warriors, fights and wins the battle. And we'll see before the end of the chapter, many of Abner's army die. And it's just so tragic. It's so shameful. Why are these two real and false generals and real and false kings fighting against each other in Israel? It's a mockery. It's a shame. It's a tremendous dishonor to God. The whole, the whole world around Israel could just stand back and say, we're the Philistines, we're the Amalekites, we're the, all the other ites around. Why don't we just stand back and watch this little inbred backwater tribe fight and kill themselves? They're doing our job for us. 
It wasn't altogether different than that when Abraham Lincoln would write in his journals about how shameful he felt about the fact that the North and the South were battling each other in the United States during the Civil War. Not so united of the United States. It's shameful. It's ugly. When brothers are fighting against brothers, and that's the subtext. That's what's going on in this passage. You'll see it so clearly in a moment. They all know this is shameful. They all know they're supposed to be brothers. They all know this is not a virtuous, mighty war where the people of Israel are going out and standing against uh, the unclean around them for the glory of God. There's nothing of that here. This is dark and inbred and shameful and unholy in every way. It seems like Abner has this penchant to just destroy unity, to destroy family, to destroy the work God is doing and stand against God. You can feel that element rising in nations or, or sometimes in societies or in cities. I've even felt it in churches from time to time. A sort of warring Let's use war for useful purposes. And it, it often begins with lots and lots of gossip. Oh, the gossip that kills churches, kills nations, sinks ships, grieves God. That's where Abner's functioning. That's how he's living. David and his army has a right to respond. David and his army are not wrong to send out Joab, his nephew, as his general, to defend and fight. Joab is not in the wrong here. In fact, I believe that Ukraine has every moral right for its own existence to stand against the aggression of Vladimir Putin. And I believe that Israel has every moral right to stand against the efforts of terrorists to try to remove Israel from the map. Sometimes taking up the sword is a necessary response. If someone interjected themselves into my family's life, I would stand with all fierce weaponry available to me to protect my family. It would be my moral duty and honor. David and Joab are not in the wrong here. Abner's the aggressor. Abner's the one who has rejected God's plan. Abner's the one who has rejected God's king. Abner is the one who acts in unholiness and wickedness here. We must surge to the task of peacemaking because conflict surges in the world around us and shall until Christ returns. Be the first one to choose a statement of mercy in any conflict that you're in. Be the first one in your marriage or in relationships with siblings, or in relationships at work or online, or, or relationships within churches or ministries or communities, be the first, because of mercy, to initiate peacemaking. And you'll say to me, yes, but what a cost it will come at. Indeed, what a cost. This is why peacemaking is enjoined upon us, because it's so very costly and precious. It's so very difficult to do because it costs so very much. I have to put away my right to have revenge. I have to put away my right to have my reputation preserved. I have to put away my right to be understood correctly. I have to put away my right to be thought highly of. My second observation is that very observation, make the Father's peace, for it comes at so great a cost. Look at verse 18. 
The battle has been fierce. David and his armies under Joab have won. But Abner has made such a mark of darkness and of division and brought such shame on Israel that a young soldier, a warrior named Asahel, brother to Joab and Abishai, nephew to King David and truly has carried on King David's honor and faith in God, he decides to go back in and pursue Abner. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, says verse 18. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Asahel pursued Abner as he went, and he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Reminds me of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Do you remember him? A German pastor while in the 1930s Nazism was rising in Germany and he saw the danger of Adolf Hitler and Nazism and so he fled and he came to New York and he, he made a, a circle of friends and he was ministering and having great theological discussions at Union Theological Seminary and he was preaching and teaching in New York and he finally said no because Adolf Hitler is still bringing Uh, pain and sorrow and loss and wreaking havoc and confusion upon the Lutheran church, I'm going back. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer went back into the war, and he was ultimately in pursuit. He had agreed with a group of people who were to assassinate Adolf Hitler to bring the war to an end. He had joined with that group in approval of it, just like Asahel here, a virtuous man calling out an Abner in his day. Well, indeed, much like Asahel's outcome, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was taken as a prisoner of war and ultimately in a concentration camp. He died before the end of the war in August of 1945. And Asahel dies as well. Abner says, turn to the right or the left. I'm the the general. I could turn around, stop, and we'd fight together, and I'd wipe you out, young Asahel, no matter how fast you can run. But Asahel would not turn to the right or the left and be satisfied with taking anyone else's Spoil. He wanted to bring to, to an end this Abner who was the aggressor dividing Israel. Look at how verse, in verse 22 Abner reasons, and this is a key insight into how to understand this passage. Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? It's brotherhood that should bind us together, says Abner, the aggressor. How could I face your brother Joab, the other general, my counterpart, if I kill you, his younger brother? I don't want to kill you. You see a kind of shame coming over Abner here. But he's right. There's a brotherhood in Israel, and this whole civil war in Israel that he's initiated is so very shameful. Verse 23, Asahel refused to turn aside, therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear. And he dies and falls there. So grievous is his death that all who come, Joab and Abishai, his two brothers, we got to chase after him. We got to get up there. We got to help him out. And they come up right to where their brother had fallen. And the sight so grievous, they stand still. Much like the sight of Christ hanging on the cross, a good man on a good mission, God himself. And the women and the centurion and those who observed on 3 o'clock Good Friday, they stood still as they watched the death of a good man. David's impulse for peace came at such a great cost. 
It's a shameful killing of a brother against a brother. Because you see, if Abner calls Joab his brother, Asahel, who he just killed, is also his brother because he's Joab's brother. How shameful it was for for this war game, this dark and perverse war game, to turn into a full-blown battle and now the best of David's army are dying. And Israel is collapsing. And, And shame is unfolding. Who will come and take away the shame? Who will come and bring peace? Who will come and allow brother to dwell peacefully and lovingly and kindly together with brother? The ache that we feel in this passage and the heaviness that we feel as we read it is climaxed all the way to Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, Gentile, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Those who are far off, Gentiles, brought near to those who are near Jews. Such that we say, look at the cost that has been paid for the peace of God on the earth. Peace doesn't come by gathering all the Nobel Peace Prize winners in a room and concocting a plan. Peace doesn't come by getting all the politicians together to concoct a plan. Peace doesn't come... By, by buying and getting the biggest army and warfare and navies together to create a sense of terror at the pulling of a trigger, peace does not even come by a overdrugged, intoxicated individual calling for an imagining of the end of heaven. Peace comes through one way and one way only through each person submitting to Christ Jesus as King and Lord and His death upon the cross as the wiping away of the guilt and the sin of both sides. We say to the warmongers in leadership in the nation of Russia, repent, trust in Jesus Christ and be content with what you have. We say to the people of Ukraine, repent and believe, for Christ is your only hope. We say to the people who are seeking to destroy Israel, you who are far off, the gospel is for you, come, repent and be saved. And we say to Israel, put away your rejection of your Messiah, he has come, repent and be saved. The cost of peace is so very high. For you to be able to go into a moment of crisis or strife or difficulty and say, I am going to choose to initiate peace here. I'm going to be the first to speak mercy. Costs something. You have to be radically convinced that the cost is worth it and has been paid by Christ on your behalf for you to initiate peace. You have to say, He has loved me so generously that I can then love this one who doesn't deserve it from me any more than I deserve it from him. Finally, making the Father's peace, for he is the living God who mercifully reigns over all. 
Let's watch the climax of the event. Look at verse 24. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. You see, they had a crisis moment. The two brothers of the one who had fallen, you can feel the, the blood pressure rising. You can feel the anger rising. You can feel the fear and the anguish and the, and the revenge rising. And they're going to pursue after Abner. They're going to say, our brother was killed by Abner and we're going to avenge his death. In fact, that's the driving force for massive amounts of strife and warfare around the history of the world and the history of humankind. The passage goes on, and as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gaia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner. Is there going to be a second part to this war? And become one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. So there they are, stopping and ready to have battle number two of the day, as if the first one wasn't enough. Then Abner called to Joab. Joab comes in earshot, and Abner says, Shall the sword devour forever? Now, Abner, you started this, <laughs> and you're saying, can we quit now? I want to be done. I don't want any more sword killing. I don't think Abner is having any kind of epiphany. He's not all of a sudden discovering God here. He's not all of a sudden discovering faith here. We'll see that as the chapter unfolds in chapter 3. But I think he's tired of the battle, and I think he knows he's going to lose. I think he knows God is with David and David's general Joab, his nephew. And I think he knows it should be over. So we ask the second question, do you not know that the end will be bitter? Yeah, you bet it will be, Abner, for you and for everybody. You're the one who brought this bitterness upon Israel, bringing Israel almost to the point of destruction. Can you imagine if Joab steps up at this moment with his brother? They're avenging the death of their dead brother. They could put Abner out of his misery and cause Israel to almost go out of existence in the way this civil war carries on. Abner asked a third question, how long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? You see how he's using the terms again of we're together, we're affection, we're siblings, we're brothers, we're all under God's blessing, we're all Israel, why are we fighting against each other? And that's of course the question to be asked of Abner. Now Joab has a crisis. How is he going to respond? What's he going to say? What's he going to think about? I, I'm sure he's thinking, I have a dead brother to avenge, and you killed him. And you brought all this on yourself, and now you're asking for it to be over? Now you have the boldness and the courage to come as the guilty one and ask for mercy from me, Abner? Look how Joab answers. It's the climax of the passage. As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. Yeah, we're brothers. But I hear that you actually want us to stop and I am not basing my decision on your character, Abner, or on trusting you at all. And I'm not afraid of you in the least. If we fought, you'd lose. I base my decision on the living God. As God lives, I'm going to blow the trumpet. So Joab blew the trumpet, verse 28, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. 
Joab carries on the very favor that he saw David show in the early part of the chapter to the men of Jabesh-Gilead who were supporters of Saul by saying, the Lord shower his covenant love upon you. That's exactly what Joab is doing, just like his king and his uncle David. Abner calls for mercy. Abner had no right to call for mercy. He had no basis. He had no warrant. But he called for mercy. Please let this sword wielding stop. Please let the bitterness stop. And Joab, the higher man, the more godly man, the more David-like, Christ-like, God-like man says, as God lives, because the sovereign Lord rules, because the sovereign Lord is alive and rules over life and death, he rules over your life and my life, because he has got a just plan for you and all on the earth, I am going to offer you mercy and blow my trumpet to cease the fighting. The first person who offers mercy in any conflict is the person who has the highest and clearest vision of the living God. If you're the one with a high, clear vision of the living God in any conflict, you be the first person to show mercy. Look what happens to Abner. The last paragraph. It's full of poignant mercy. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arba. They crossed the Jordan, rich with meaning. Marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Job returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abraham's men, or Abner's men. Who was going to win this battle? David's men. Sadly, you can imagine, verse 32, Joab and his brother taking up their slain brother Asahel, and they buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. Back to David's hometown. David's older brother, Zeruiah, that's his father. David's nephew is buried in Bethlehem. Feel the pain of it, feel the loss of it, feel the cost of this peace. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. Because God lives, Joab shows mercy. Because God lives, I promise you, you can show mercy in whatever conflict you're now in or may enter. There isn't a conflict on the planet for whom the mercy of the living God is not enough. There isn't a conflict in human history or that shall ever occur for which the mercy of God is not enough. You and I see ourselves maybe first as the Joab. I want to be the one who sees the living God and I want to share and shower mercy upon others. Oh, let that be. Give you vocabulary to speak and a trumpet to blow and a, and a kindness to say, I'm going to have to go bury my brother, but I'm going to do so knowing I spoke under the terms and under the character and favor of the living God and I spoke peace. I've been in lots of conflicts and I have never been ashamed of myself for speaking mercy. Never once. I've been ashamed of myself for defending myself many times. How does it begin? It begins when you come to the Lord Jesus and say, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
I'll be Joab someday, but right now I'm Abner. God's righteousness will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Romans 4, 24 and 25. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Jesus lives, I am given mercy. I'm the Abner and I come to Him and I say, I started all the problem, Lord. I'm the one who was the aggressor against you. I'm the one who suppressed your truth in unrighteousness. I'm the one who deserves to die. You are the son of David, and all I can cry out is for mercy. Have you ever done that? Have any, every one of you in this room, young and old, if you're a child, look to your mom and dad. If you're, if you're a little one, say, would you help me do that? Would you, would you help me admit that I'm the one with trespasses dead in my sins, and I need the son of David to have mercy on me? Because he lives and rose from the dead, these two passages teach us, we then can not only be forgiven, saved, and made righteous, but we then can be empowered to go into the next conflict and be the one to lean into peacemaking by offering mercy. During the Civil War, which came to my mind so often as I was studying this passage, I read about a teenager named Richard Kirkland, African-American teenager, he was fighting for the Confederate side in the Battle of Fredericksburg. And after the Battle of Fredericksburg was over, and there were thousands of bodies laying all around the farmland near Fredericksburg, and the Battle of Fredericksburg had come to an end, Richard Kirkland, who was not yet 19 years of age, according to the biographer, went to his Confederate captain and he asked for permission May I take canteens of water and go out into the battlefield to find those who yet live and give them drinks of water? Enough of the rifles and cannons had gone silent that the captain permitted Richard Kirkland to take as many canteens of water as he could carry on himself, and he went right out into the battlefield, and you know he did not give water to only Confederate soldiers. He started giving water to every soldier who was alive, both Union and Confederate. And he spent the whole rest of the day and that night ministering cool water to all the fallen who were yet alive before they could come and be captured, lifted, carried, given medical attention. Known as the Angel of Fredericksburg, Richard Kirkland. Israel and Hamas, Russia and Ukraine, my life and yours, we need to be mercied by the peacemaker, Jesus Christ, and carry on as Joab did David's favor and character from God, the very character of Christ into the peacemaking that rises up around us and requires of us to be the first to speak peace and mercy. If you've never trusted in Christ and asked for His mercy, confess that you're the guilty one, the Abner in the story, and that you need to have mercy shown to you as it was to Abner and his army, then do that even now today. Do that as we leave this service and as we head into our meal together 
Let this be the day when you receive, for maybe the very first time, the saving mercy of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I ask for now that you would touch the hearts of those who have not yet experienced such mercy. I pray that your spirit would settle sweet and powerfully upon old and young, men and women, boys and girls, to remind them or to maybe introduce to them for the very first time the wonder of knowing that your mercy is for them, made for them, customized and and prepared for them to enjoy fully the forgiveness of sins and the restoration, peace made between them and you. I find, Lord, how I experienced that as a child, but I have experienced it countless times since then, for it's the very life of my relationship with you coming back to you for mercy once again. For those who also bear my testimony and come often to you for mercy, lavish it upon us, each one. And out of such mercy would you make us peacemakers, Those having been saved, going on to save and to speak salvation, even to one's enemies. Thank you for Joab. Thank you for David. More than that, thank you for Christ. Thank you, Father, for your glory and the outpoured Holy Spirit upon us to cause these things to be reality in the very decisions we're making today. And the way we pray for our world today and the way you'll equip us for the days ahead. I pray all this in Christ's precious, powerful, merciful, peacemaking name. And everyone said together, amen.